So good morning to everyone. Let's have a let's have a word of prayer and we'll start. Uh, dear Father, we're grateful to you for this day. We know that, uh, as as Paul says in Acts 17, you give life and breath to all things. We know we're here temporarily. We thank you for your word that tells us about eternal life through Jesus. And we ask your blessings, Father, um, as we grow and learn. Uh, we thank you for that gift. Father, you know our desire is for peace in the Ukraine. Uh, we pray for that, that aggression would stop and so many people hurting from that. And uh, we don't know you're working in all of this. We know you have a plan. We know that you set up kings and take down kings and uh, you work in the affairs of men. We, we pray for your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And our prayer, Father, also is that this conflict would stop. Please bless our study today. Uh, we all are thinking of different ones and that are hurting, that are sick, not feeling well. We ask your blessing in each case. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're looking at John 12. Um, appreciate the... I thought Skip just did an excellent job last week in John 11 talking about Lazarus' resurrection and all the implications that that has for ours. Uh, Jesus... One of the passages there in chapter 11, he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. And he, he showed that. And of course, the, he showed that with Lazarus. He showed that with himself. Staying in the grave only a short time and defeating death. So we are grateful for that. And uh, for that lesson, I... You know, as the folks wrote, as the folks, as John wrote his, his letter here, he didn't divide it into verses and chapters. So I want to get into chapter 12 from, from chapter 11 as it leads into chapter 12. And uh, just one word about um, in chapter 11, verse 39, when Jesus went to raise Lazarus, um, Martha met him and said, uh, Master, uh, it's been four days and by now he stinks. The Pharisees had a tradition that someone could be revived if they had died. They might be revived within a day or two or even three that the spirit hovered near the body and might come back into the body. But after four days, the spirit departed, and whoever was dead was good and dead. And that was the case with Lazarus. And so when Jesus raised him, this was a sign of God's activity of a messianic miracle. And I want to I read a passage there in John 11, verse 47 and 48. Um, 
the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders are getting really, really concerned at all the, by all the miracles and signs Jesus is doing. And so they say, uh, pick up 47, so the chief priests and Pharisees gathered uh, the council and said, what are we going to do? This man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone's going to believe in him and we will lose our place and our nation. They they could see the support uh, for Jesus was building among the, the people. And they said, we got to do something. We're, we're about to lose control. And not only um, if this goes on, he's going to replace us. The people are going to follow him. And, not, and the people weren't really very, uh, the Pharisees and the, and the chief priests were not very popular with the people. Over a period of time, they... Uh, the people saw through what, who they were. They saw that they were high-handed, uh, that they were not really concerned about the people, about the sheep. And uh, they weren't very popular. So they were concerned about losing their place. And here's the thing I want us to notice here. Uh, they said, this man does many signs, many signs. By, by their own use, this term... Signs was something that was evidence of God's working, of either God influencing or acting directly in a situation. It was a sign of Jehovah, of Yahweh's presence and work. And so it's sort of strange, isn't it? They said, this man is doing many signs. That's, <laughs> that's a confession that he's doing things that God, God is, is present here, is with him, is involved in this. And they said, we got to do something to stop this. Isn't that a strange thing? Uh, God's working through this man. We've got to stop it. If we don't stop it, we're going to lose our positions. Um, you know, God used Jehovah in talking uh, back in Exodus, uh, when he was commissioning Moses, God used the same term for signs to Moses when he was getting ready to send him to Egypt. And he said, uh, throw down your, your staff, and it became a serpent. The scripture said when Moses threw down his staff and it, and it became a serpent, that he ran from it. Uh, but then God said, no, pick it up by the tail. It'll become a staff again. He did. Put your hand in your cloak there and pull it out. And it's white with leprosy. And no one gets cured of leprosy. He said, put it back in. It comes out and it's clean. And so God says to him, now, when Pharaoh sees these signs, these evidences that I am with you, maybe he'll believe. And then Joshua comes along and when he's talking to the Israelites, Joshua says, hasn't the Lord done many, we have seen, our eyes have seen many signs and wonders done by the Lord. And he's talking about, of course, the Red Sea parting, two million people walking through it, not, not on muddy ground, but on dry, dry ground. That's a good trick. They go through it. 
And then when the Egyptians come behind them, the waters that, and you think about how long it takes 200 people, to, 2 million people to walk through something, that water's being held back for quite a while. Maybe 12 hours, maybe 16 hours. It collapsed. They, uh, the fiery pillar by night, every night, I am here. I am here. The manna in the morning for years, manna showing up in the morning for them to eat. Uh, so Joshua says, we have, we've seen many signs, that's Joshua 24. Um, so the Pharisees, back to our situation, they, they've got a situation. They've got to either preserve them, act to preserve themselves or to acknowledge this man is acting on God's behalf. God is with him. Do we preserve our interests or do we acknowledge this is the Messiah? We have a choice. And they chose self-interest. They chose to preserve themselves. Um, Verse 50 of chapter 11, Caiaphas says he must die. It's better that one man die for the nation than the whole nation to die. Their fear was if Jesus became too popular, everybody would follow him. The Romans would have to come in and squash. You know, some, sometimes you hear the word quash. I, I'm from Arkansas. I say squash. Just squish them. Richard, I see your hand. Yes. What Kappa said there is leading up to the supposed one. Yeah, Caiaphas, the scripture says Caiaphas was actually predicting the trial and crucifixion of Jesus, his statement. Uh, It was a preliminary statement, and as the the chief priest, he was sort of prophesying about what was going to come. Uh, So he says it's better for one man to die than uh, the nation. So he had also, the chief priest, he had blinded himself by being so focused on his position, preserving the status quo that the high priests were enjoying, that he was blinded to see the signs that Jesus was doing. Just a word. Is it possible for us in in any situation, in day-to-day living, in interactions with other folks, to be so focused on our agendas that we don't see obvious facts that may be right in front of us, but to be so focused on our self-interest. Mike says, of course it is. Well, sure it is. So as we look at Caiaphas and say, good grief, these guys... But maybe on, a, maybe on a smaller way, we can do the same thing by being self-focused on our agendas and not be alert to what God is doing. Uh, you know, Dave, Dave Blanchard a couple of weeks ago when he was here, he, he talked about two rights can make a wrong. And one of those rights was, uh, I'm right. And to be so convinced that I'm right that I don't, see some obvious facts you know and the different situations that that we experience in life there there may be more than one right I mean uh, 
different opinions. Uh, two, two people with different opinions may both be right. It just depends on the situation. The point is to not be so focused on the way I'm thinking that I close, close my mind to seeing other, other options, other possibilities. Not, not to be guilty of being a, a, a Caiaphas. Richard, what's the proper pronunciation of Caiaphas? Caiapha. Caiapha? All right, I'm going to call him Caiaphas. <laughs> I just wanted to know. So the S is silent. There's no U.S. on it, it's just F-A. F-A. No, that's, it's Englishized. That's the Greek. So uh, as a good Greek, back as a Koinea person, he was uh, Kepha, if you, w- if you wish. Uh, one other thing, so, so by the way, so when, when the high priest made that declaration, scripture says Jesus withdrew. He, he, he got out of the public, he went to a little village, Ephraim, and uh, out a ways north of Jerusalem. Scripture says when he was... When the, uh, when the Passover was coming near and he's on his way to the Passover, little do the Jews know, by the way, that the real Passover was, was coming in about a week. Uh, they just were going to gather in Jerusalem to observe the traditional Passover, which was also a real Passover, but not the big one. Uh, as Jesus is coming in, Luke tells us in Luke 17, verse 11, that Jesus met 10 lepers, and we all know that story. He healed the lepers. One came back and said, thank you. Um, about that, I want to notice just something I think is important in Luke 17. If you have your phones, if you would turn in your phones to Luke 17. Surely there are no Bibles here besides me and the Smiths. We're old school, aren't we? I can't make notes on the phone. That's why I don't like I don't like using phones. Now Jeff, he's a he's a twenty second century sort of guy, and he can do it on the phone, and that's fine. I want you to notice in Luke seventeen when Jesus encountered these ten lepers. Something important here that's that's easily read over, easily, and we don't don't notice. Look at verse fourteen of Luke 17, when Jesus saw the lepers, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Uh, Now, two things here. One thing we notice, the second thing we we don't notice. The thing we notice is Jesus sends them to the high priest. Now, that was, that's sort of, uh, I think Jesus had to be maybe smiling a little bit when he did that. Because the, the... so he sends 10 lepers to the high priest. That was required. If you were healed of leprosy, you had to go to the high priest and they had to do a several multi-day investigation. I've read that it was a week long, whatever it was. They had to verify that you were who you said you were, that you had leprosy, that you were actually healed. I mean, it was a process. So the irony of that is that Jesus sends these 10 lepers to the priests and they've got to inspect these guys and their eyes are telling them these guys are healed of leprosy. This is a messianic sign. Healing leprosy was not done. Only God could do that. 
So just the irony of it that the priests were proving to themselves when they came to be uh, pronounced clean, they were having to acknowledge these guys have been healed of leprosy. The Messiah is here. A messianic event has happened. So Jesus is just adding that. Uh, as these priests that saw that, that, uh, that did this investigation and pronounced these guys healed, you wonder what they were thinking to themselves in the days and weeks following that we, we just killed a guy that heals leprosy. I mean, that had to be pretty convicting. They knew what they had seen, and they knew by their own definition this was a messianic act. But anyway, the second thing that I want us to notice is this, in verse 14. After Jesus commanded them to go and show themselves to the priests, it says, as they went, they were cleansed. Very significant. Here's what I want us to notice. Let me ask you before I make a comment. Do you think when they received the command to go and show themselves to the priests, and then as they, so they say, go show myself to the priests, I'm leprous. But he said, go do it, so we're going to go. So here we go, and as they get along the way, they look, and the leprosy's gone. It's gone. And they go to the priest and say, look, we're clean. We're healed. They obeyed what Jesus said to do. And so my question is this. By obeying Jesus, did they do anything to earn or merit their cleansing? No. They didn't deserve to be cleansed because they went to the high priest. They were cleansed because they obeyed a God-given command. The definition of faith is trusting obedience. Whoever wrote Hebrews spent a whole chapter, Hebrews 11. It's called the faith chapter. All these examples are given of people obeying God and receiving the blessing. Scripture says in Hebrews 11, verse 4 or 5, that by faith Noah obeyed and built the ark unto the saving of his family. Did Noah earn salvation? No, he obeyed God. It says, the scripture says, by faith he, act, he obeyed. Hebrews eleven seven, by faith Abraham offered Isaac. His obedience is called faith, not separate, not meritorious. By faith, about verse 30 or so in Hebrews 11, the, uh, maybe 31, somewhere in there, the Israelites walk around Jericho for seven days and seven times on the se as instructed. And when they get through, they blow their horns and the walls fall down. Was that meritorious? No, it was God 
saying, do this and I'm going to give you this that I said I would. Here's what I want us to understand. The thing today that is so prevalent is to separate faith from obedience and make faith be sincere belief and obedience a work. And we know we're saved by grace through faith, so any work is not part of our salvation. What is missed is, is that the scripture defines obedience as faith. Scripture makes no separation. That is completely different from what you hear in a lot of religious gatherings these days. People are asked to come forward and to pray the sinner's prayer. There is no sinner's prayer in Scripture. That's a man-made thing. There's no sinner's prayer in Scripture. There's no prayer to be made to have forgiveness to become a Christian. That's completely man-made. It's not in the Scripture. But the reason that has come about is because of the misunderstanding of faith and obedience and not understanding that obedience is part of faith. So turn, please, real quickly. I've got to move, man. I've got to go. Colossians chapter 2, real quickly, but this is important for us to get. Colossians chapter 2, verse 11 Now here's what you you, you notice here as we read this. Colossians 2.11 In him, in Jesus, you were circumcised by a circumcision made without hands. It's spiritual. By putting off the body of flesh, body of sin, by the circumcision of Christ. Notice this. Having been buried with, 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 let me see if I'm getting that right, with, Buried with him in baptism. In which you were raised with him. Through faith. Faith in what? Faith in the powerful working of God. There is work in baptism. It's God's work. God is working. God is making someone a Christian. God is removing sins. It's not us doing anything other than obeying God like Abraham obeyed God and offered Isaac. Like Noah obeyed God and built the ark. We're obeying God, but the work being done is by God. It's God who forgives sins and places us in Christ. Verse 13, you were dead in your your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made you alive with him. It's God's work. God makes us alive. So when we're baptized into Christ, it's God's working. It's not a work of man. It's a work of God. That's that's a distinction. I just want us to notice that. So let's move on. Uh, Chapter 12 now. Let's read first six verses or so of John 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, Bethany, 
where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served. Lazarus was one of those reclining at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. Judas, one of the twelve who was about to betray him, said, Why is this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And he said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he helped himself to what was in there from time to time. Uh, Just a a quick thing to notice here. Um, In Mark's account of this, Mark says in chapter 14, after this event happened, then Judas went to the high priest and began to make plans to betray him. This was the, the final straw that set Judas off on his task of betraying Jesus. Um, you know, Judas had spent Three years with Jesus. Three years. He was a free moral agent. He spent three years with Jesus, but his heart was not changed. Three years. Going to church, seeing the miracles, hearing the scripture, all that. But his heart wasn't changed. Just a a lesson for you and me a message to you and me to not just go to church and not be changed. As we spend time in fellowship, in worship, in study, in church, as we call it, we should be changing. We should be growing in our prayer life, in our study life, in our service, because the more we learn about Jesus and follow Jesus and, and fall deeper in love with him, it just spills over. Uh, if we just check into church and uh, grab a sermon every now and then and leave and kind of go on about our lives, you have to, have to wonder about that a little bit. Am, am I letting the word, am I letting the spirit change me, convict me, grow me up? Because I have to actively pursue growing. I have to engage growing. I have to do things. Reading and praying and fellowshipping. And as I do those things, then I start to change. But Judas had not changed in three years. Um, Dropping on down to verse 9 and 10 large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there. They came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So, you know, here's, here's poor old Lazarus. He's not guilty of any of the things the high priest charged Jesus as guilty with. He's just raised from the dead. He's just a sign of a messianic miracle and now they've got to kill him too. 
And so their agenda has gone so far, I mean, they're out of their minds. We've got to kill this person doing these messianic signs. And not only that, we've got to kill this other person that's totally innocent of everything. An agenda that just goes and goes and goes and we don't see, we're blinded by our own agenda. That's what they had done. Um, Hard to see ourselves sometimes when our convictions have us so convinced of something and we just can't see it because of our own other convictions. Uh, You know, so the church leaders, as we would say, the Jewish leaders back there, the priests and the Pharisees, they go, they're they're totally in on this tangent now. We got to get rid of this guy. Uh, The people didn't follow. How often do you hear of someone disappointed by a church leader or someone else at church and say, well, I'm just going to quit this church thing because that person's a hypocrite because of this or that moral failure. Look, people will always fail you. Your relationship to God is, yes, it's with the body, but don't quit Jesus because of what other imperfect humans do. Imperfect humans will always do stuff. And it may be an elder. It may be a preacher. It may be a Bible class teacher. It just may be this or that person. Don't quit Jesus because of what leaders do. Leaders have a responsibility and other members in the body, we all have responsibilities, but we never quit Jesus because of what someone may do. That's a trick of the enemy. And it just makes no sense. And we probably all know of people who have quit church, walked away, because what someone at church did, and they said, forget it. Boy, what a what wrong reasoning. Hey Gary, I hear. If, if you let a hypocrite get between you and God, the hypocrite's closer to God than you. It's Don't walk away with, from Jesus. Ever. Uh, okay. Let's see. So he comes into town there. The crowd is crying, Hosanna, verse 13. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. The, the crowd is totally convinced that this is the Messiah, and they are looking for a political solution. They want to get out from under Rome. This guy is doing all these miracles and signs, messianic signs, that he's from God, and they say, Hosanna, O Jehovah, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. They are expecting, here's the guy that's going to relieve us from the oppression that Rome is putting on us. So they're all thinking politically. Richard. Why did he come in five days prior to Passover? 
Why? Why did he come in five days prior to Passover, Richard says. I bet Richard has an answer. Five days before Passover, you select the lamb. For five days, you search that lamb for a defect. That's the process. Any lamb offered for Passover has to be without blemish. And so they were there to... God's orchestrating this whole thing. Uh, The Pharisees, the priests, they had tried to kill Jesus several times before. And the scripture says, as we read in Mark, in uh, John 7, in John 8, in John 10, uh, their plans were foiled and Jesus slips away. The time was not right and God was not going to let it happen before the time was right. So this crowd's around to arrest Jesus and the scripture says he slips away. How do you slip out of a crowd? Well, God can do things. But the time wasn't right. God had set up Passover to free Israel from Egypt, to free them from Egyptian slavery. Now he brings his son to the earth for the Passover for the world, to free us from slavery to sin and death. He established Passover as a freeing uh, event. The Jews observed it every year. And then he brings his son for the Passover to free us and the whole world as the Passover lamb. Second Corinthians or First Corinthians chapter 5, one or the other, first or second, uh, about verse 7 says that Jesus is our Passover lamb. So God brings this uh, about in his own time. You know, Jesus rides in on a donkey. Military leaders would typically ride in on a horse or a chariot. But Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 says that your king will come in riding on the colt of a donkey. And that's what Jesus asked, told the disciples to go. So he uh, picked and so he rides in on this donkey. Another sign, he is not a military leader. He is not a general or a king of political persuasion. Jesus had said, my kingdom, the kingdom of God comes without observation. It's not going to be a political kingdom. It's going to be within you, a spiritual kingdom. And so Jesus comes in as scripture, uh, Zechariah had prophesied, writing, on a donkey. So in verse 17, everything, the whole town is a buzz about Lazarus, who foreshadowed, as Skip shared last week, Jesus' mission to, uh, he, he gave us, he, Jesus gives us a spiritual resurrection in our baptism and eternal resurrection at his coming. And Lazarus is sort of a foreshadow of these major events that God is bringing about. And then this strange verse in, uh, I say strange, strange to us maybe, um, verse 20 and 22 says uh, a number of Greeks came to seek out Jesus. And it really doesn't tell us what happened or what went on with that, just that Greeks came. So these proselytes, these Greeks, I would suggest to you that that's a foreshadowing that while the Jews were rejecting Christ, the Gentiles were coming to him. And it's a foreshadowing 
of our coming to Jesus. And Richard, I would let you speak, but I've got four, five minutes and I've got to finish. I just think they're Greek-speaking Jews. Greek-speaking Jews, but it says they're Greeks. So whatever it is, it may be a sign that Gentiles will... We certainly know Jesus said, go into all the world and teach my gospel to everyone and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. John 3.16 says God gave his Son to the world that whosoever believes. So as Paul goes to the Greeks, to the Gentiles, uh, and I think they probably were proselytized, but I would say Greeks, I would say Gentiles. But whether it is, it is whatever it is. Quickly to wrap this up. Uh, Okay, so Jesus, let's go to uh, verse 24. Uh, Verse 23, John 12, 23. Jesus answered uh, them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. So Jesus, when he died, bore much fruit. His death brought salvation to millions. And the same goes for us. He he goes on in the next couple of verses, and there are two choices given. Uh, One is about our lives. Whosoever loves his life will lose it, but whoever hates his life, and this world will keep it for eternal life. So I have a choice about my life, to keep it for my own purposes or to surrender it, to surrender it to Jesus. If I keep it for my purposes, he says, unless, he said, the seed isn't dying, you've kept it for yourself. He says, that will die. Nothing happens. But if you surrender it, if you die to self, you'll bring fruit and you'll have eternal life by dying to self. Um, And then the second choice as we wrap up is verse 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, my father will honor him. A couple of things here. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. So the second choice we make is about our direction. Whether to follow Jesus or not. Our direction. My path or his path. You know, we were at the mall uh, a week or two ago, week before last, with Rory and Hattie. Hattie's two. And we were constantly saying to Hattie, stay with us, stay right here with us, and here she goes. And she gets up there, as far from here to the door, Hattie, stop, come back, told you to stay with us. And so we go through that several times. Hattie wants to go and do and see things. Hattie has no clue of any danger. She's just looking. But we are saying, stay with me. Follow me, stay with me. That's what parents do. They try to keep their children safe. 
Jesus says, stay with me. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be. And what a neat thing as he closes that comment. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Wow. Wow. So we close with reading this verse. And I've got two minutes, so I'm in good shape. I did leave out quite a bit, but I've got to the end of it. Hebrews chapter 2. We've looked at this before. Hebrews 2 verse 11. What a neat verse. We all have our favorite verses, don't we? This is one of mine. For he who makes holy and those who are made holy have one family. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers or family. Jesus is not ashamed of us. We may be ashamed of ourselves, and rightly so. But the one who makes us holy and those who are made holy, us, not by our merit, but by his grace, are of the same family, and he is not ashamed to call us family. That's a big wow. If, if that don't light your fire, your wood's wet, as Jim Moran used to say. God bless us as we follow him. Hey, I'm Eddie White, the senior minister for the Eastside Church of Christ. Sure want to thank you for joining us today on our podcast. I hope today's message was indeed a blessing to you. I'd like to invite you to browse our website at eastsidesprings.com to get more information or to contact us. And as always, we indeed welcome you to join us for our worship service in Colorado Springs as we seek to live out Jesus' mission of making disciples of all nations.